Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. This sea of cowardice that we swim in, it requires white people to do one more thing, and really all people, not just white people, and that is be brave. Because we got to have everybody step one foot beyond their fear. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, the special episode of the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. And Yvonne, I think you could tell I was about to say, as always, uh, <laughs> but uh, I didn't. And now I just did. So uh, there we are. Um, <laughs> I, I, first of all, I should say before we get started with our guests, uh, which I, I'm so excited about, is that you, we have to congratulate Yvonne because you were just named as one of 21 lawyers on the ride in the Fulton County Daily Report. Uh, so she's, you're on the rise, Yvonne. <laughs> Thank you. As you know, I feel like that was largely due to the fact that I was um, right on that age cutoff. And uh, yeah. so this was my last year. So this one time getting older comes in handy. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's well deserved, Yvonne. And you well, know Well, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Yvonne, I call this a special episode because we're not talking about any one particular trial. Uh, as our listeners know, we usually pick one trial, talk to the trialers who tried it and about how they tried it. Uh, this is a special episode that I'm uh, calling uh, Civil Rights and Civil Justice. And uh, and we have three fantastic guests uh, that we have on the show uh, that we're just going to talk about uh, what is happening now uh around the country, where we are in history, and, um, and just put some perspective on it, talk about uh, what we can do uh, in our own lives. So uh, let me just go ahead and introduce everybody. Uh, I'm going to start with Katura Tops. Uh, Katura is uh, policy counsel for the NAACP Legal Def Defense Fund. Uh, she went to undergrad, and I saw that you got a double, uh, double degrees in French and philosophy, so that doesn't sound easy, and then went to a pretty good law school called Georgetown, and were the editor of the Law Review. So uh, we're setting the bar very high here, and uh, and uh, work on the. She didn't agree to this. Now she gonna make me seem stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no way, no way, that ain't happening, man. <laughs> well, and, and Katora, you uh, um, worked on the Mid Atlantic Innocence Project, clerk for uh, the Honorable Gerald Bruce Lee of the. Uh, 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 Eastern District of Virginia uh, District Court, and uh, that's, I've never uh, met Judge Lee, but that is just a fantastic name. Um, and then also when you were at Simpson, Thacker, and Bartlett, uh, were part of the uh, Civil, Rights and, uh, Civil Rights and Liberties Initiative. So uh, welcome to the show, Katura. Thank you so much. And I'll just add that I currently work in uh, LDF's policing reform campaign, which okay. is policy and legislative work around policing. Well, and, that, and that's one thing we're going to talk about today, because uh, just today, uh, I think it passed the, uh, the House, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, right? Yeah. OK. Today. All, right. All right. Well, we will be talking about that some more. So okay. second, uh, I'm going to I'm going to introduce Judge Gino Brogdon. Uh, 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 Certainly people in Georgia know who, who Judge Gino is, uh, and uh, just a fantastic lawyer, fantastic judge, uh, all-around great person. 
Uh, Gino, uh, you were a Fulton County um, State Court judge for, I think, seven years, a Fulton County Superior Court judge for four years. Uh, you're an adjunct professor at Emory Law School and at John, John Marshall School of Law, have been a legal analyst at, at, on CNN. Uh, you have a, a law practice, plus you do mediations and, and are a fantastic mediator. But uh, what I'm really, uh, we really got to start watching is uh, personal injury court. That, uh, that you are the, uh, the judge on personal injury court, and, uh, and we're so glad to have you on. So, uh, so welcome to the, the show, Judge Gino Brogdon. Thank you, Yvonne and Steve. I'd say it's a pleasure to be here. I say this to folks when they're reading all that stuff that I stumbled into in my resume. I am an example that anything is possible. I didn't even plan on <laughs> going to college. I really didn't. I oh, went man. to college because I got to play on a, on a football team with a school that hadn't won a game in five years. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the beginning of my legal career. <laughs> but thank you for having me. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, man, we're, we're, we are glad to have you. And, uh, and, and last but certainly not least, uh, a good friend of the show and a good friend of ours is uh, Derek Alexander Pope from the Arc of Justice uh, Institute and Arc of Justice Project and the uh, host of the Hidden Legal Figures podcast. Um, uh, Derek, the one thing I hadn't, I don't think I've said before, Derek has been a, a guest on our show twice before, and I think... Uh, other than my law partner who has to come on when I, when I tell him to come on, I think you've been on the show more than anybody else. Well, I'm, I don't mind setting records as long, <laughs> as, they're, right. as long as they're good like this. So I'm glad, I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, uh, Derek, and, and uh, thank you so much for coming on. And I should say, if you want to look up any one of our guests, if you want to look up Couture Tops, you can go to NAACP ldf.org. If you want to look up Judge Gino Brogdon, you can go to Gino, G-I-N-O, Brogdon, uh, B-R-O-G-D-O-N.com. Or if you want to look up Derek, you can go to onthearc.net. And that's arc with a C, so onthearc.net. Steve, right, I, think well, this is the, I think this is the, um, the best podcast problem we've had so far in that our problem is that we are way outclassed by our guests. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it, y'all, y'all are in trouble. Huh? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, as you know, I like to bring on people who are much smarter than, than me, especially, who uh, no matter what I say, they can pick up the ball and, and make it look like it sounded good. So uh, uh, we've got three fantastic guests, and, we, and we're uh, just so glad to have you guys on. Guys and gals, I should say. Um, all right. Well, so like I said, uh, I'm, we're calling this the Civil Rights and Civil Justice uh, uh, you know, show. It's a special episode for the Great Trials podcast. Um, and, I, I, you know, the uh, history of civil rights in this country has been a long and rocky road. Um, it, you know, after the Civil War, there was a time of reconstruction, and we've talked to Derek about this on the show before, where it actually looked like there was there were, was some progress being made. Uh, actually, had a, a, a lot of uh, black legislators get into office, um, and then uh, after reconstruction was sort of shut down, and the troops were uh, withdrawn from the South. Uh, the change in the voting laws came. Uh, you get things like the Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, and then the institution of Jim Crow laws, and sort of looked like everything's backpedaling, and it did backpedal. Uh, and then uh, you come back around with uh, with Thurgood Marshall and 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 D.L. Hollowell and, uh-huh. and folks like that that uh, just did fantastic work, and and uh, Brown versus Board of Education, 
uh, and doing away with separate but equal, the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and then, you know, it, I mean, I, I, it's been going on for too long, but, it, but especially uh, lately, it just seems that we've had uh, too many um, uh, uh, black people, uh, especially young black men who uh, died at the hands of police or people who thought they were acting as police or claimed to be acting as police. Um, and so it's just been really tragic. And so, of course, uh, just lately with, with, you know, here in Georgia with Ahmaud Arbery and uh, Richard Brooks, uh, what happened to them? And then, of course, the national movement of what's happening, uh, what happened to George Floyd uh, up in Minnesota, <clears throat> all just uh, absolutely tragic and horrific cases. Um, and it's started, uh, not started, it, it, it seems to have crystallized and maybe a tipping point for uh, for the movement, especially for Black Lives Matter. And, and so the reason why I wanted to do this show and Yvonne wanted to do this show is because this just feels, at least to us, as something different in history than what we've seen before. Um, so that's, you know, I guess that's the first place I wanted to kick off the conversation is um, what what do you think is going on now that makes this feel different? I mean, first of all, does it feel different? Or, um, and why do you all think that it does. And, um, and Katura, uh, uh, I'd love to start with you if you're, uh, if you're uh, happy to start off. Absolutely. You guys hear me clearly? Yes, we hear you good. Yes. You know, uh, I've actually been thinking about this question a lot because in my line of work, we obviously are constantly bombarded with images of Black people being brutalized, being murdered. Um, and so in many ways, I, I actually remember the day that I saw the George Floyd video and it, it was just a typical work day. You know, we sent it around our team. We said, let's research it. Let's figure out what's happening. How can we support? Um, and, and then quickly we realized this was very different. And so I've been trying to wrap my mind around what happened. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think first, you know, America was in a position where we had just watched COVID-19 wreck so many lives. Um, and there was sort of this, this understanding that, oh, we're all in this together and this is a global thing and it's affecting everybody. And then the numbers came out and it was like, oh, no, actually, this is disproportionately affecting black people, black and Latinx communities, low income communities of color. Um, and so then while people were sitting at home doing nothing, then we started to see constantly video after video after video in a way that you really couldn't deny the extremity of the racism that was here. And I feel like COVID just started that, you know, let me sh shine a mirror to America's face. And then all the videos happened just so quickly and it was just undeniable. And then I also think there was something particularly alarming about how Officer Chauvin looked directly into the camera right. as he killed George Floyd. And that is something that I don't believe that we've seen that intense and that long. I mean, it, the video was so long. Yes. Um, and so I think just all of those factors together, him with his hands in his pocket, the very nonchalant attitude of knowing your own camera, the, the, the pain and the reeling of communities still trying to figure out what they're going to do after COVID, job loss. I mean, all those things coming together, I think that really sparked what made this moment different. So it, it absolutely is different. Um, and, and I won't hog up too much time. I'll let my co-folks <laughs> co jump in. But I do want to also note that um, this is the first time, at least in my lifetime, that I've seen 
uh, white communities and non-black communities jump on board and really push back against this narrative. You know, very often this is a black fight. This is a community of color fight. This is a low income people's fight. And, um, you know, it's, it's very hard to get that sort of buy-in at all levels. And I think this was something where non-black people were really forced to say, you can't look away this time. You can't yeah. deny it this time. You have to acknowledge it. Um, and of course, we're still seeing that pushback that we usually see. But, but it was really impressive to me how, how much of a unified effort came out of this. Yeah, you know, uh, one thing I, I, you know, now, now that you mention it uh, about the um, uh, George Floyd, and it was horrific to to watch that. And, um, and I hate watching things like that. But I do think it's important that people see that, because you, uh, you can't turn away from it. Uh, but when he when just the way he had his hands in his pocket, just seemed like he uh was almost like dealing with an animal in his mind and, and it and just the callousness of it just really uh sort of shook me and I, I just to watch somebody know that they're they're taking somebody's life away mm-hmm. and really not seeming to care at all um but um but uh, uh i, I want to hear what uh, what gino and derek uh have to say about this issue and, and about this this moment where we are, are in history so uh so who who Gino, you want to go next or Derek? Uh, Ken, um, <laughs> you know, we are in, in America and in the world, um, we're having to face that there is a sickness called racism. Mm-hmm. Police brutality on people of color is just the running nose to the cold. Mm-hmm. It's not, it, it's not a problem with police. It's a problem with racism in policing. And, what we've got to be very careful about in this, some people would call a movement. Uh, I think it's a bit more than a movement. Right. And I'll explain why in a minute. Because movements end often with uh, very little change and everybody feeling good. This is different in a couple of ways. But this so-called movement is an anti-racism movement, not an anti-police movement. Because what we do know with the videos of the uh, weaponizing of whiteness in the parks and things like that is that it's not just the police who think that black people are animals who, and not all police, I don't mean to say that. It's not just some police who think that black people need deadly force as soon as you encounter them because they're inherently dangerous like an animal. Uh, I said to people when I was online, uh, I said, if you want to test the silent co-conspirators of George Floyd and the, the, the uh, wake of George Floyd, change one fact in that scenario and see if people's reaction is difficult. And then I ask you, do we have a racism problem? Make George Floyd a beautiful German shepherd. Yep. And put put this cop's knee on his neck and that German shepherd whines and screams and slobbers and, and boo-boos on himself and dies a horrible near nine-minute death and watch the people come out and want that cop to lose their license, to be penalized, to go to prison. Some people will say he needs to get the death penalty. And if you want a little bit of proof, and y'all can see I'm excited about this, if you want a little bit of proof, 
Look at how people looked at that woman, Cooper, in the park who called the police on the bird watcher. You you know, half them people were more concerned about the dog than the fact that he was seconds from being killed if that circumstance had been different. Now, here's the problem with that and why now is beautiful and now is much like my favorite movie, The Perfect Storm. All the right elements are intersecting such that a mirror is held up in front of America. We have to face that there was a bad marriage from the beginning. That is, America married racism at the beginning with slavery. And what we did is we tried to go to counseling called the Civil War, okay, and 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 understood a couple of rules and said, okay, we're not going to call each other names, but let's keep believing what we do. And then we go through Reconstruction, like that honeymoon period in a bad marriage. That didn't work either because your hemorrhoids start getting bad. <laughs> then we go into civil rights and put lipstick on the bride and the husband, and all it results in is a big, messy, ineffective, sloppy kiss. We're still, in many ways, where we were in 1954, in 1854. And people don't want to hear that because it feels better to say, oh my God, you got a black guy named Gino Brogdon who was a judge or a president named Barack Hussein Obama. We must not have problems if one of you made it to president. There lies the problem. It's got to be a mindset change. And, And as hard as this sounds, Just like sexism and gender discrimination is largely a man's problem because it's how we treat women. It's how we treat women. White people own racism. Mm -hmm. Not that they're the only people with bad feelings on race, but if it is to be solved, it must be first acknowledged. And that acknowledgement requires wrapping your arm around the horrible things that left black people where they are. Yeah. Those things can't, you can't write them away. You can't make, now you certainly can't with cameras, right? But we're talking about events now. I'm talking about black babies being gator bait. I'm talking about uh, 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 carnivals where they threw baseballs at three-year-old black children. Now, that's not to make anybody feel guilty, but you got to understand why we are where we are. That kind of inhumanity not only punished us, but it robbed the white people who did it. And that stuff has legacy for where we are. I'll give you one more example and I'm going to (laughs) stop. I was talking to a group of judges because y'all know I like to keep this real. I was talking to a big group of judges and I said, okay, y'all, if we got bias, don't you think we as judges, I mean, we're human too. Let's talk about bias in sentencing. I said, I'm going to give you a scenario and I'm going to add facts. All I want you to do is just raise your hand if you have any reaction. Your ears start to tingle. If you Just be honest, though, because if you're not honest, it doesn't work. I said, a girl comes before you. She's 22 years old and charged with shoplifting. Somebody raised her hand. I said, she's pregnant. People raise her hand. I said, she has two children. Raise her hand. She's got a prior offense. Raise her hand. I paused and I said, she's black. Don't you know they started hollering at me? Are you calling me a racist? I said, all I did was add that she was black. (laughs) Okay, we're talking about bias in sentencing. 
If judges and people in the legal system don't embrace that race has infected the legal system, then the process can never be fair to people of color. It can never be fair. And I, I was a judge. Judges have to, not just white judges, black judges too, have to face bias in sentencing. Now, one thing I propose, and then, and then Brother Derek, I'm really going to shut up. <laughs> one thing I propose, when you talk about, about uh, changing infrastructure in the legal system, people will think this is radical, and that's okay. You come to my address, we can talk about it, right? Judges, prosecutors, and law enforcement officers are immersed every day in the worst circumstances that the human existence has to offer. Most of my days were murders, rapes, robberies, and child molestations. Now, if there's anybody in this world who says that that doesn't have an effect on what you think of people, mm. then they're crazy. So if you're a cop out there, and cops go through a lot of stuff now, they get spit on, they have people put things in their food, they go through a lot of stuff, okay? They also, more importantly, or as important, see things and are involved in things that, that erode your humanity. It erodes what you think about people. My first child molestation case that I presided over, I started crying because it was a six-year-old, right? By my 15th, I was thinking about what I was going to order for lunch. Yeah. We got to have checks on how people are changing. Let me stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive, as you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. 
Well, Derek, uh, I definitely uh, uh, want to hear your perspective on this, especially, you know, you're such a student of history. Uh, I'd love to hear your, your um, uh, perspective, you know, where we are now, but where we sort of come from. Steve, if this were a trial and I'm in the position right now of the closing argument, after information that's been presented to the jury by Couture and information that's been presented to the jury by, by Gino, I'm really nervous to talk to the jury right now because I'm really certain, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about I just might blow it because it looks like we're going to get a favorable outcome here, okay? <laughs> so now but with that having been said, when you talk about the moment we're in, when Gino uses the phrase that this is more than a movement, it's something else. It's so interesting that the name of your program is The Great Trials Podcast because the very idea of us being a self-governing people, the very ideals of the, a constitutional democracy is actually on trial by, by the very things that Gino talked about. At the beginning of the formation, there was a declaration of something we said we believed, but there was a wink and a nod because we really didn't believe it. And the theory and the practice are coming into collision point right now. They are staring each other in the face. And we are looking at a particular moment where the words that we find in the Declaration of Independence where Jefferson writes, when, whenever a government becomes destructive of these ends, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's the right of the people to alter or abolish it. We're at a moment where we're trying to decide if this is going to be altered. Are there still some things within the structure, the fabric of what has been put together over these last 240 plus years of American existence that will allow for some alteration that can perfect this climate? Or is it just a lost cause and it just needs to be abolished, wiped away, set aside and begun again? That's, a, that's what makes this, in my opinion, feel different. The, the theory and the practice is on trial with one another. And you mentioned the historical aspect. The, the, the historical evidence of that is very, very clear. Uh, one piece of evidence that we fail to bring to the jury's attention and that needs to be described in this particular moment is the language that sits inside the Dred Scott decision. We had a civil war to remove the, the outcome of, this, of the decision, saying that black people were not meant to be citizens. They were never thought of to be citizens. And we had a civil war, and then we had, we had reconstruction amendments to sort of overturn the outcome of the decision. But the sentiment expressed was a prescription for others who could not let go of the notion that the thought of equality is reserved only to a carefully, a carefully cut out group of people. And that language when Justice Taney talks about that black people had no rights, that a white man was bound to respect, 
And then he goes on and singles out and says he, a black man, was bought and sold as an ordinary article of merchandise and for gain and profit when it could be realized. That sentiment was a prescription. And when people are talking about using the words, uh, the phrase systemic racism, it's very important to understand what's meant by systemic racism. It is not the, the insults, the indignities, the slights that come from the use of things like the N-word that creep into our cultural conversations. It's insulting to be called the N-word. It's a slight to be called the N-word. It's, there's a certain indignity if you're followed in the store. But that is a byproduct of what is meant by systemic racism. Systemic racism begins with a preference. The notion that you can prefer one thing over another, fill in the, artificial, fill in the blank on the artificial classification, you can go back to the inhabitants of this land that we refer to as the, as the North American continent in the 1500s, and you will find black people and white people and what we refer to as Native American people. And the only thing that they saw with one another in relationship to each other is that there's another human being making their way on this land, trying to find food, trying to find housing, trying to find shelter, and trying to find a way to live. In the early 1600s, Yvonne, something creeps over, something that comes over in the form of the British, college, the, British, the British crown participating in the East Indian Company to do trade, global trade of slave and, tra and, 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 and trading in spices in India and profiting from the trafficking of human beings for an economic purpose. And then the Virginia Company of London comes over and establishes the Virginia, the Virginia colony and something creeps in where then you have this, this, this aspect, this notion of otherness. These are not human beings. These are, this is something other than what we are and are not entitled to the same kinds of benefits, the treatment, the understanding that Gino alludes to that if it had been a German shepherd, there would have been a particular outcry as opposed to a person that you do not see as human. You see them as just something other. And then all of a sudden you get to 1640 and you have a case out of Virginia called N. Ray John Punch. And in that case, three indentured servants, two white men, one black men, escape from their, from their, from their, from their servitude. And inside the courtroom, the judge, there's no Virginia statute that he's following. There is no regulation anywhere. It's his own thought process. The two white gentlemen are given a, three additional years of servitude on their, on their indentured service. But the black man named John, John Punch is said to now have to serve for the remainder of his natural life. Preference to see someone as other resulted in a judicial policy. When preference becomes policy, that's what systemic racism begins. And then when that policy turns into a phrase like all other persons in the Constitution, that policy then becomes a principle called separate but equal that it takes darn near a hundred years for somebody to, to eradicate. When preference turns into policy and policy turns into a principle that is codified, 
protected and enforced. That's what's meant by systemic racism. And it becomes the kind of thing that it's going to take a lot of work and some time to uproot, to get rid of, in terms of it being both a mentality, a way of life, and, 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 and a, not only just a way of life, but a way of life where people benefit from it and can be enriched from it and can, can flourish in that environment. One of the things that, that, is, that you all touched on that I, that I think to me is hopefully different about what's happening right now is that, I mean, white people are typically, spoiled. just to generally speaking, are so spoiled by their privilege that if you're a white person with around, with a, around a bunch of other white people, you're usually not talking about racism at all, right? It's just like a benefit of your privilege that you're not even, it's not even something that's coming up for you that white people are talking to other white people about unless you're confronted with an issue or working on the diversity of a program or talking about black history. And what I hope is different about this time, what, what has felt different to me is that, you know, you, that first, the work has to be done by white people. They have to be uncomfortable and they have to have these conversations that I think, at least in my, in my personal history, when, when other things have happened, I mean, I was pretty young when Rodney King happened, but it felt different. It still felt like white people were listening some white people were listening, but they weren't necessarily doing anything. You know, what I hope what's different this time is that white people, it, it seems like some of it's out there, but that white people are doing something. Because, I mean, Gino, as you said, this is, it's white people. Racism comes from white people. Yeah. Can I, can I just, yeah, that real quick? I think one of the biggest things for me, and, and Derek, I'm glad you touched on the systemic aspect of it. I would actually go one step further beyond preference and say it's white supremacy. Um, that's been the constant thread that we've seen baked into the history, which has affected everything that we see today. And so I think when we talk about this moment, when we talk about it being different, yes, it's great that uh, you know white people are tuned in, but I think the bigger picture is that there's an acknowledgement that it's systemic, and that what, what this moment requires is dismantling those systems that have been in place from that time that Derek's talking about, dismantling those and actually bringing them down. So we're seeing people not just talk about uh, this particular officer needs to get fired or that particular person needs to be convicted. We're saying the entire criminal legal system needs to be reformed. We're saying the entire housing system, the education system, all of these systems, because the the concept of white supremacy, which is how we get racism, is so baked into literally every single system of American life that you can't talk about this moment. You can't chant for Black Lives Matter if you don't acknowledge, yes, Black people are being killed uh, by police officers, but they're also being excluded from economic growth. They're also being redlined. They're also facing express voter suppression. So there really isn't anything that we have fought for before that we can look at today and say, wow, that doesn't exist anymore because every single part of it is a part of a larger system. And so I think mm -hmm. 
I always like to make sure that we bring the conversation back to not saying we are, you know, dependent on white voices and, you know, changing people's hearts because this, this isn't an issue that's going to just, your heart isn't going to change. This isn't a morality issue. We're not appealing to morality anymore. I think, you know, black communities and communities of color are fed up. We're, we are no longer saying, hey, please see my humanity. Please acknowledge that I'm a person because the fact that you can, uh, you know, see such graphic violence shows that there is an acknowledgement of humanity. You can't have any of the examples that Gino quoted. You can't have babies being, you know, over gators or, or anything that we've seen today. I, I don't even like to reference those really long ago examples because I think we have the most egregious examples right here in present day. And those can't happen if there was an appeal to humanity. So we've tried that route before. Um, and so now it's more like I'm not particularly interested in whether or not there, you know, there's an acknowledgement of our humanity. It's we're going to demand that the systems that allow you to continue to act that way are dismantled. I hope yeah. that that makes sense. No, I, because I, I, I was just thinking about this, you know, based, you know, with with all of you uh, saying that. But um, I, I'm glad you touched on that, Katura, because, um, you know, when you when you think about, you know, what's happening right now, uh, you know, uh, and, and I have great respect for uh, many, many police officers. I think the majority of them try to do the right thing. There is a there is a problem with systemic racism. Uh, but it, it, as you've all touched on, it is is much bigger than just in our law enforcement. It's much bigger than just in our court system. It's in really every aspect of society. And I guess I, I would love to hear all of you on, you know, it, because, you know, we've called it a movement. Gina, you said it was more than just a movement. And, um, and, we, and we need it to be more than just a movement. We need it to be just a complete societal change. And it, and it can't end. I mean, it, 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 it can never end. And how do you do that? How do you Make sure that that this that you know we you know a month from now we're like okay we dealt with that problem we're moving on and then it goes to something else. How do you how do you keep making the change you need to change and and how and, and I mean when we're talking about a society that has really has had uh, as Katura said white supremacy is 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 in the foundation. How how do you make that change the the kind of changes that we need uh, that we need to make. And I'll start with you, Gino. Let, let me jump on that. You know, part of what makes um, this moment different is, is we've never had a white supremacist in the president's office who is open. Now, there may have been people with some bad thoughts in the past, and you could speculate, but when you, I, I, other than dropping the N-word, Right, which I wish he would go on and do if he feel like it. Yeah. So everybody can breathe. But uh, <laughs> other than that, he hasn't done, he's, he's exhausted all the racist stuff. And what has happened, there are people who've been tempted to say, Donald Trump made our, our town bad. No, he just made people who think like him comfortable enough to come out and lay in the lawn chair on the front yard and, and show the goods. So... But, but that's what's made this different is that it has smoked out the people who uh, we thought were on the fringes. No, they're in the law firms. They're wearing uh, robes that, without a hood, okay? They're, they're, they're in places. I was talking to a lawyer, and I was saying to him, I'm, I'm not going to ever differ with someone as smart 
and accomplished as Miss Couture. Uh, but I, but I want to put a little tail on something she said. I'm still an optimist that hearts can change, not in my lifetime, not in your lifetime, and not in your children's lifetime, but maybe in your grandchildren's lifetime. Hatred begins at home. As Gil Scott Heron said, home is where the hatred is, right? <laughs> People teach hatred. You see those videos of those children running toward each other? Those weren't scripted. Those kids love each other. If there's anybody who doesn't see color, it's three-year-olds, maybe. But folks treat their kids uh, uh, racism by the time they're three. But the change of heart is people have to acknowledge that what, how you raise your children is how the world is going to look. Just like what you eat reflects in your waistline, how you raise your children and how you raise other people's children is how our world is going to look. If you raise a racist, you've got the blood of racism on your hands. And it's not, a lot of people have, a, have an idea of some, you know, four group of guys sharing 10 teeth in Alabama and they're real comfortable with each other's mamas and sisters. That's not the racist that we ought to worry about. The racist that we should worry about, when I say racist, it's, it's like calling somebody a liberal or a, or a Democrat, it's got razor on it. When I say racist, I mean people who think of black people and other people of color different in material ways. Not smart, dangerous, smell different, think different, different morals, those kind of things. People who have those thoughts. And we gotta be honest about this. If you grow up white in this country, I'd be surprised if you grew up and didn't have bad feelings about black people. If you're surrounded in it. When you're sitting there sucking on your pacifier, you're seeing the news that your dad is watching with black people doing all kinds of things because that's what the news does. It portrays us as, as, as dangerous thugs. So kids are exposed way low. It's not a surprise that black people are seen in a bad light. I was talking to this lawyer. I know I'm rambling a little bit, but I want to tell you this. <laughs> I was talking to this lawyer who is a dear friend of mine. He is white. He is a conservative. He even voted for Trump in 16, okay? And we were talking just a few days ago about race, and I said, racism is at the DNA, the cellular level of white people because for so long they've been on IV of racism. And here's, here's proof, and he chuckled when I said it. I said, I can tell when you're talking about a black person and I don't know that person. He said, how's that? I said, because you're going to say they're articulate. Mm. You never describe a white man as articulate. You'll say they're bright. White people are presumed bright. There is racism. Mm. We've got to change that. We've got to make sure. I actually was talking to somebody who told me about a, uh, some kids last year. Their teacher told them that, that black history was optional. We can talk about it or not. There's racism where you've got that kind of, you've got that mindset. And, and it's that, that's why I say, I know we got to have policy changes. We got to have conduct changes because my mama didn't worry about what you thought. She worried about your conduct. Okay, and I understand we can't be doing some kind of kumbaya slow dance 
to the future. This stuff has to change now because people are dying. But I am telling you that this fight will still burn white hot until people stop thinking of black people and people of color differently. Now, that process may never happen. As long as there are people who look differently and as long as there are people who are putting little seeds of this stuff, just enough to grow up where you can see the weeds, maybe we'll never be done with racism, but it can be better. It can be better. And I think with these young kids who are starting to get involved in what is happening, this phenomenon that uh, with the young kids investing in it, because people my age, I've, I've, uh, I was on social media. I've lost some friends over this because I didn't realize that people I played football with and shared sweat and tears with in high school. Now, obviously, I'm a dumb ex-jock thinking that football is meaningful, but it made a way for me. These guys were my brothers. I didn't realize that they they had views similar to Klansmen. But I was the exception. That's the other thing that, that frankly, white people got to stop doing. Stop thinking that a guy like me is some exception. I'm a magical Negro or something. I'm, I'm simply a representation of all those brothers out there that would have done at least as well as me if they had my chance. And the reason they don't get the chance many times, not always, many times is because of that system that uh, pushes them through school, undereducates them, on and on and on and on. My, my, point, my, my point, several points really, but my main point was that eventually people have to think of us differently and not just President Obama is an example, it is this exception, but all them folks over there are thugs, you know what I mean? I'm yeah. done. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to say for the record, uh, Judge Gino, I would never tell a judge he was rambling, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right, not to my face, right? That's right. <laughs> I wanted to not to do that a long time ago. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Derek, I want to I hear your, your input on this. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, because, you know, you know it, it seems like we need to make such a big change at such a, at a core level. And, and um, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, how they talk about uh, uh, marriage. You know, marriage is never easy. And uh, you have to work at it every day if you want your marriage to succeed. And you're never done working if you want your marriage to succeed. And I think this issue is something that, you know, as imperfect as we are, we, we can never stop working on it every day. But Derek, go ahead. Steve, Yvonne, you remember we, before I've told you that if I were on the appeals court, I'd probably be the great concurrer. <laughs> right. And with what I've heard in the last two segments with, from Gino and Contura, I, 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 I wholeheartedly concur, but I want to speak separately to emphasize a point that the majority may not have had enough of a brief on when the information was put in front of them. Yvonne, you talked about what is it that white people have to do? And Katura mentioned that the real problem is, as I like to phrase it, the infantile notion of the supremacy of whiteness. It is a lot of hard work that will go into seeing yourself and defining and living out an identity that is not based on and rooted in your skin color. 
that's that's going to be hard work for for some white people. Um, I like to use the words that James Baldwin used that the the real work that has to be done or re, will get to the real point of knowing that we've solved the problem when you come across the death of whiteness that has to die off. But in the context of what's how do you see yourself beyond that? There's really been nothing in the history of the United States of America that gives you any ability to do that. You don't even have, you can't go to LexisNexis. There are no great volumes of the U.S. report that you can go to. You, cert, you can't rely on even the one among those who have risen to the level of the top echelons of, 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 of the judiciary who were white. You, you, you can't rely upon a John Marshall Harlan, because even in Plessy versus Ferguson, before he says in but in our Constitution is colorblind, preceding that sentence, he says. The white race is the dominant race and will no doubt remain so if it maintains true to its great constitutional heritage, even in the act of suggesting to a group of his colleagues that you really just can't tell a group of people they can only sit in one part of the bus based on the classification of race, even in the exercise of trying to describe what was wrong, he had to pull on something inside of him to say, but we still are gonna maintain our position, our hierarchy of being thought of, perceived as, and maintaining a position above any and everything else. So you don't have any place that you can go to do that particular work. And so when Katura use, uses the words that she, well, there is no, no interest in talking about the morality of this moment, just going to demand that the humanity of black people which has been eviscerated and, and not seen for these 400 plus years. White people are going to have to use their moral imagination to see themselves as something other than white. And that's some real hard work that will have to be done. And at the same time, there's some real hard work that black folks are going to have to do. Uh, uh, Gino, you know him very well, uh, Charles Johnson, who is now the general counsel down at Tuskegee, uh, used to be a partner in one of the large law firms. He was on our podcast and I went to interview him, Steve, and I asked him, you know, how do you like being down here away from the big firm? And he said, I do not miss billable hours. I do not miss having to constantly track my time. He said, but what I don't miss the most is the mental gymnastics of trying to figure out what my white colleagues are saying when they say certain things. And he used oh. the example, Gino, he said, you, you being in law school, you wondered, am I catching hell because law school is hard or am I catching hell because I'm black in law school? He said, I do not miss the mental gymnastics of having to go through, of having that burden. The hard work that black folks are going to have to do in this moment is we're going to have to be able to figure out is, is what this guy is saying based on him just being stupid 
Or is he just said because he's racist? Because that's a burden that we carry with us, having to figure this out each and every time that something happens. Sometimes things are just stupid. And having to do the work of having to figure out is, okay, what the distinction between the two are. Then we're going to have to, we collectively, we're all going to have to do some, some different, so another kind of work. As Gino talked about the aspect of sexism, Gino, Steve, you and I, if we get in our cars and go out right now and go to the grocery store, we're looking for the first available parking space. We don't care if it's close. We don't care if it's far. You, the, th the three of us will never, ever understand that women are trying to find a parking space that makes them feel safe. We don't even we, we don't have a clue of what that's like to just want to go to the grocery store and we're trying to find a spot, a spot to park in where you don't have to feel like there's going to be an unwarranted advance on your person. That's in the grocery store. That's in the parking lot. Imagine what they have to deal with inside the workplace. Imagine what they deal with inside their inside every place that they have to go to. That's why at the on the very once we saw something the very day of this president being inaugurated, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women showed up in the street and said, I'm not exactly certain what you all have done by electing this individual, but you do not see what harm and what danger has been placed inside this White House. Because as men, we don't see or live that danger that they experience every single day. And so, but again, with that different kind of work, by the same token, Keturah, Gino, Yvonne, none of us have any clue of what it must be like every time to hear the phrase white supremacy and it morph into this mendacity of the malicious, maliciousness and malevolence of being a white male. We have no idea what Steve goes through to try to maneuver through that and say, but that's not me. Yeah, and all and all of these little things that we're all we all have to go through to get through this moment, we're going to have to be able to develop a real sensibility in hearing that through. Not jumping on it when we hear it because we think it is an automatic reflexive response to continue to justify what we're trying to get out of. But it, we got to listen to it carefully because Steve is really saying, if I can't tell you what, I, what, what I'm experiencing when I hear this, we're not going to be able to construct when we, in, in the moment we come out of this, the kinds of things that will keep others from slipping back into what we tried to get out of. If we don't hear what women are saying when they're telling us, in this space, in this spot, in this moment, at this time, there is an uncertainty and, an, and a vulnerability. If we don't listen to them and we think that there's some, some kind of just man bashing going on. Amen. And we're going to miss the opportunity when we come out of this moment for them to construct the parameters and the framework that will keep us from slipping back into. So it's a lot of hard work that we're going to have to do. 
It's a lot of hard work that I'm wondering if that we're willing to undertake because Steve and Yvonne, at the same time that you're doing the hard work, you got to also be mindful that there are some people who look just like you who ain't going to let go. Right, right. And when the Klan was started in the early 1870s, its first target was white people who were working in collaboration with black people at the beginning of reconstruction to actually create a different framework. They came and intimidated white people. So you would not form an alliance with people that would not further the cause of reconstruction. And if you are a white female and you have a child on your hips and some night rider comes out and puts a flame of a clock, a, a burning cross in your yard, and you decide to retreat into the comfort of your own neutral corner, to protect your child from these crazies. I can't blame you, but you got to be on the lookout for that at the same time that you're doing your work to define a new identity other than whiteness. And that's hard work. Yeah. But we have to start, we have to start saying that and give space for the, for the conducting of that work. So when we come out of this moment, we're creating a different identity that will allow us to be in the, to stay in that moment and not slip back into what created it. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. You know, nobody likes to say, I I'm a racist. Nobody likes to, to say, I've got faults. Uh, but 
you know, as, as, you know, I've come to realize, you know, it is so ingrained in us. That it is hard to say that you don't have uh, racist thoughts at times or, you know, and it's something you have to work hard at. You have to work at your imperfections. And I certainly have uh, some of those imperfections. You know, one thing I was wondering you know, as as I told you all before we started, this is a lot of our listeners are trial lawyers. Trial lawyers, by nature, I think, generally try to fight for the little guy, fight uh, against big interests that are that are harming people, um, and, and and generally want to do something to help society. And I guess I'm I'm wondering, have have you all given thought to in our own individual practices and our own individual things that we can do on a, you know, uh, on a daily basis, what we can do to help move forward and, and make progress, uh, in this time. One, get your clients to vote. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and press upon them the need to register to vote. Yeah. And I, and I, I definitely want to talk about uh, voting. I mean, it's such an important thing. <clears throat> and you, and you, Gino, you, you, the funny thing is you say, you know, get your own clients to vote. I mean, sometimes I got family members that I can't get to vote and you're talking to an uncle. You're like, this stuff is important. How can you say you make no difference? Uh, you, you know, uh, you know that's but, uh, one of the yeah. things that, you know, people talk about dangerous things going around. I mean, obviously, uh, we got a lot of danger in the air in this country and, and maybe in the world. But one of the things that's most dangerous that's happening to our society is people losing confidence in our systems. Yeah. They lose confidence in the Department of Justice. They lose confidence in the court system. They lose confidence in the voting infrastructure. They lose confidence in the schools. You know, we had a big uh, cheating scandal here in Atlanta uh, and you know, people indicted the school systems. When people lose confidence in the kind of the infrastructure of our society, you, you've got a powder keg because they don't believe in anything. They won't, you know, one of the things that's dangerous about suggesting that this far in advance and recklessly suggesting that the, the election will be rigged is that people are already doubtful about so many other things that they're willing to take that on. I actually had a guy who uh, was one of the actors on uh, my show. And I I stayed in contact with him. And when things, when the George Floyd thing happened, when when George Floyd was was murdered on film, he said he sent me a text and said, I really believe that staged and George Floyd is somewhere in a hotel. I thought it was a really odd joke that I still should should chastise him for. But I wrote him back and I said, do you believe this? He's and this guy's like 40 years old. Yeah. He said, yes. Uh, hashtag QAnon. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Yeah. Man, we're, this dude's 40. He's not a 75-year-old dude that, that that grew up, you know, doing some bad things. He's 40 and actually is open to there's some deep state in there trying to infect all the systems. That's, that's why I say losing confidence in basic systems is very, very dangerous. I'm not saying that we that we shouldn't question whether the current setup with 
police forces and how they're funded and revamp that stuff. I'm not saying that shouldn't happen. I'm saying we got to be careful losing confidence in everything because if you don't believe anything, then this is Mad Max in the Thunderdome. I think there's been a lot of points made and I just, I want to respond a little bit to the, the work and your question, Steve, about like how, what can uh, white people do at this moment to keep the momentum going and what can they do? And, you know, I actually feel that this isn't a moment for white people to try to separate themselves from their whiteness. I think this is a moment for them to fully lean into it, to fully acknowledge just how powerful your whiteness is to fully understand that literally your body between my body could be the difference between life and death. Um, And so I think what happens in this moment is this is a time for white people to do work on two levels. One is acknowledge what's happening around you. Acknowledge that these systems prefer you um, and then uplift black voices. Do your part to say, this isn't about my interpretation. This isn't about how I view things as a white person and whether or not I believe this or that. This is, let me take the mic, let let me get the stage and then hand the mic to a black person. This is the moment to say, there are black people in this country who have that legacy that we were talking about earlier. We have a legacy of trauma. We have a legacy of discrimination. We have a legacy of deprivation of basic and most critical resources. And this moment is not anything new for any of us. It's just a moment where others have started to see it, right? And even in this moment, everybody else isn't fully acknowledging it, but this is critical. This is a surprising moment because it's the most acknowledgement that we've seen. It's the most that we've seen other non-Black communities step up and say, I acknowledge things are different for you on a systemic level that's deeply rooted, and I'm willing to help you push for this fight, right? And so I think we need to see those... um, those communities, those groups, those non-Black groups really step up to the plate and do that work. And then I really just, you know, I, I know, I don't know what the phrase you use, Gina, was mad madness or something. This is a, <laughs> If we have no faith in the system, then it's completely madness or something. Oh, it is. oh he, well, he referenced Mad Max and the Thunderdome. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> That's exactly, what yeah, exactly. I'm like, that, that is this moment. That is because these systems were not created for Black people to succeed. And so I, you know, I, I always get a little hesitant with, you know, saying things like, you know, go vote or, you know, do better or get a job or do this when it's like, well, that sort of ignores the creation of these structures that literally have prevented us from doing that. And not just on one level, but on a multi-generational level. And so of course, absolutely there are efforts and things that, you know, black communities need to do, but black communities do do that right and so this this is about acknowledging the ways that we aren't allowed to do those things this is about acknowledging the structures and the reasons that black exceptionalism is a thing because you know we say oh i'm, I'm sure you guys had the same experience as i did because i i went to law school in uh 2012 and you know i had that constant experience of, you know, you're, you're the only black person in class, or, you know, you're the only black person for this or for that. And so while we don't want white people to say, wow, you're the exception to the rule, we also have to acknowledge the realities behind that, which is in a lot of cases, the black people that you do see in those spaces that are allowed to push through these barriers are sort of given that exceptionalism, because there's so many other 
players that have been left behind just because they didn't have the chances, they didn't have the opportunities. And so I think just bringing this moment back a little bit to policing, what we're seeing now is just a shift in saying, how can we just rethink the entire system? We, for so long, we've said, okay, how do we change this part? How do we get body cameras so we can see cops? How do we, you know, give more training so that they know how to not, you know, act on their implicit bias? How do we do this? How do we do that? But now people are saying, let's just scratch all of that and let's completely reimagine what our systems could look like. And if we start with policing, there's a complete reimagining where communities of color, black communities specifically, are calling for a reimagining of what public safety means. For too long, we've defined public safety as someone with a loaded gun and handcuffs and a baton needs to show up at your door. But we know that there aren't that many occasions where you need an armed officer to show up at your door where in, re in relation to the number of 911 calls that people call, right? My neighbor's being weird on the street. My girlfriend pissed me off. You know, whatever the reason is, there are so many instances where we've said, okay, our default is just, we just got to call 911. We got to call law enforcement. Um, and not really ever thinking about the fact that, and I'm sure Derek, you can get into the history of this, but getting to the fact that, you know, law enforcement was created initially as a way to monitor and control black bodies. Like slave patrols were specifically to watch and surveil and track black people to make sure if you were gathering in a certain area, were you allowed to do that? Do you have permission? Are you, um, you know, socializing? Are you self-educating? And, and those things are reflected today, right? We see police officers in communities of color and low-income communities more than any other communities. And so if, you know, if we want to get to the, completely reimagining we have to be honest about the fact that there are just some limitations that will or there are some issues that will continue to repeat itself over and over and over again we could have the best well-meaning police officers in the world but if they're tasked with criminalizing poverty and if they're tasked with you know criminalizing low-level offenses and you have communities that are in those poverty situations and are perpetual states and the, the government is not going to put resources into those communities and they're going to constantly be walled off from growth and housing development and all those things well then yeah that well-meaning police officer is still going to go to that community and say i'm sorry i gotta lock you up you can't be homeless sleeping on the street you can't be you know doing this minor offense and so the the only reason i keep bringing that up is because i think what's so powerful about this moment um is that we usually are and, and i say we meaning i, I think communities of color and groups in general, trying to find ways to say, how can we make one part better? How can we do this? And it often feels like we come to the table already having negotiated our position down. We come to the table saying, there's no way we're going to get X, Y, and Z. They're never going to go for that. Mm -hmm. So why don't we just accept A, B, and C, right? So why don't we just accept this? And, and people are now saying, no, we want absolutely full equality, and that requires major structural changes. And I'll stop talking now, but I think before the conversation ends, it's important for us to talk about what those structural changes are, right. what people are calling for right now, what sort of federal legislative changes that we can enact right now that would ensure sweeping radical reforms, not even radical, sweeping reforms to the way we see community policing, to the way we see policing in general, to the way we see and define public safety 
to the way we use our criminal legal system in general. Um, and it, you'll notice I'll say the criminal legal system because we don't, this isn't a system of justice. If you have a system that was never meant to protect an entire group of people, that's not justice. So I'll stop there. <laughs> well, I, I do want to follow up on something. I, I think you may have uh, thought that when I said they ought to go vote, that that was some kind of panacea for problems. Um, I've lived too long to think that. Uh, but voting is something that people need to do, whether whether they believe in it or not, because we got an election coming up in November that is going to define this country. People are talking very recklessly and I think irresponsibly about withholding a vote. People in this country and black people in this country need to vote, period, whether you believe in it or not, whether you believe it is archaic, whether you believe it is settling, whether you, I don't care what you believe in, black folks need to vote. Now that's not the end and that's where you and I agree. But to the extent you hint that voting is not important, I hope you did because that is not that is not good for any person. Any person that wants to have a say so in this system needs to vote. And certainly black folks, we've been waiting on our say so. So I think it comes down to us. I'm sorry, Couture. That was a panacea. That is a that is a first step. And he asks about lawyers, what can they do? They represent a lot of black people, and there are a lot of lawyers that represent a lot of black people. They made a lot of money with black folks walking in their office. At least they can get them to vote. That was my point. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely agree with you, Gino. I mean, there's there's never going to be a statement out of my mouth that's going to say voting is not important. I just I think that we have to acknowledge, you know, I, I keep going back to these systemic issues, but it's not an accident that there's major um, voter disenfranchisement and that millions of black people are excluded from voting because they have felonies um, for things that shouldn't be felonies. It's not an accident that we just saw literally a few days ago. Uh, what was it? Um, was it Louisville? Yeah, Jefferson County, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. The largest black county, I believe. And we saw droves of black people banging on the doors at an early hour, 6 p.m., trying to get in where there's one vote, one polling place. And so that the only reason I bring that up is because I think we have a unique opportunity in this moment to do something different than what we usually do. And what we usually do is focus on individual actors and individual hearts and individual minds. And I'll just clarify what I was saying earlier. I mean, absolutely appealing to morality is important, right? Like it's important for white people to use their empathy, to see us, to understand that these issues are affecting us on a human level, just as they would affect them on a human level. All of those things are important, but they are just side things to me. And that, that's what I'm trying to get at. I think that it's important if we can change a few white hearts, excellent. If we can change a system that says, I don't care if your heart is good or bad, mm -hmm. this is what's going to happen. And this is how we can ensure accountability for people who go against these policies, even better. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at. If we can get a few black people to come in and vote, great. If we can end voter disenfranchisement, you know, or nationally, even better. And so th those are the only reason I'm pushing back on those issues, just because I want us to focus on the larger systemic efforts rather than um, things that may affect individuals and your minds and, you know, whether or not that police officer was good or bad, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Derek, yeah. I want to make sure you had a chance to, to, to talk. I mean, you know, back to our issue, you know, I was trying to find out just, you know, what can we do in our everyday lives, everyday practice to, to, you know, you know, not stop fighting for change and to, and to make sure that we keep pushing uh, forward for the change that needs to happen. Yeah. And not let this moment be a thing that is that, I mean, not let it be just a moment, you know, not that this, I, this culture that we're in now is so weird with things that are just like, you know, these memes that are just big and then they disappear. And I am not at all trying to compare this to a meme, but I, I do have that fear of this sort of fast consumption, short attention span culture that we have that we don't lose this opportunity for lack of a better word well not only is that a big question but that's the big issue um when we were when you were having the conversation about voting that's the collective cultural space to capture to capture people's attention and not lose this moment Yvonne and I think what needs to happen when we say when we talk about voting we need to have the language and the tone that reflects the following sentiment vote comma then vote and when we talk about the issues we'll say hey, everybody got to go vote and it sounds like it's a period after the word vote and because it sounds like there's a period after vote then that's what makes katura say well i'm not really against voting but it's because she heard what sounded like a period if we could say vote comma then people could the behind the word then would be all of the kinds of, of, of changes and policy ideas structural alterations that Katura so excellently outlined and then after you go vote comma then and we have these structural alterations there's another comma that says, and keep the people you voted for accountable to what just came after the word then. See, voting is like an insurance policy. You take out your insurance policy, you get a binder number, you have coverage. And you walk around, okay, great, my house is protected, my car is protected. Do not pay your premium. Watch your coverage lapse. Go and vote. Stop holding people accountable. That's you're not paying your premium and watch your coverage lapse. So when you voted for people, comma, then you turned your attention, voting then, voting and, you turned your attention around these kinds of structural alterations that Katura talks about. You then have to hold people accountable for that because a lot of what she talked about depends upon people in legislative bodies having the courage to make the necessary policy change to put in motion what she articulated. It's not as though the police captain in precinct number five on his or her own can just do that. There's going to have to be a relationship between the peace officer, um, peace officers uh, security training in Georgia. There's going to have to be a relationship between the people who head the general, who, who run the general assembly. These people, <clears throat> excuse me, are going to have to agree that that is a sound policy for Georgia. And ironically, wouldn't it be amazing? For a group of people in the General Assembly of Georgia 
in houses of legislative representation across the state, in Congress. Wouldn't it be amazing, you're talking about just reimagining, for someone like Katura to be on Congressional Hill and people embracing the NAACP on the side of law enforcement because she's actually just said police can't do what they're supposed to be doing because police keep saying, there's no reason for me to show up over here, as she said, because the girlfriend's pissed off. My neighbor won't be quiet. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if people would adopt that policy and say, because if we really had respect for law enforcement, adopting this policy shows that respect more than anything we could have ever, ever imagined before. But when you have people inside these positions who will look at that and go, that's not policy, that's not what we want to embrace. That's not something that we're going to adopt. That's not something we're going to back. Then you don't have the ability to change it at that governing cellular level where the policy begins and that standpoint. So long with an answer, but I think we when we talk about that, how not to lose this moment. Voting is the rather, I like, I call it the rather reflexive and easy go-to uh, statement because it's a proxy for what happens in between and after elections. And the work that happens in between and after elections, we've got to figure out where those particular spaces are that don't pit us into these very small, deficient, puny, unhelpful labels like liberal and conservative, left and right, progressive. We, the, the, these things kind of put us in a particular box that if a thinking person heard Keturah talking about getting police out of the business, of having to show up with a gun on something that police wouldn't have to do if we reimagine what public safety is. If you could just find your way to agreeing that, you know, as a starting point, we let's not even say you totally agree, but as a starting point for the conversation, this makes sense to begin how, how liberating it would be if you could come to that table and not feel as though because you wear the conservative cape or the liberal lapel pin, you can't even sit in the room and have that particular conversation. So in between and after voting, we may have to start creating some of these spaces that allow for people to, to be receptive to conversations and, and, and suggestions that Keturah made without having to get locked into well, I'm, I, I play on the conservative team, and so I wear the uniform, and so I can't do X, Y, Z. I play on the liberal team, and so I wear the liberal uniform, so I really can't even come into that particular room. Because all that happens at that particular moment is once everybody gets back on the great playing field of the General Assembly, they've just got their sides all marched off, and we'll, we'll experience what, we're, what we know is going to happen. We see the House pass a bill today. But we know what the Senate is going to do because right. everybody is just now locked into their into into the playbook of their uniform and not something that will actually advance what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's one thing. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, Katura. Go. Ahead. You have to get. 
unfortunately I am going to have to run. Um, if I could just, I have one actual yeah. concrete. <laughs> I, I see you, Yvonne, keep pushing this question of what can we do? And, and I know there's so many different answers and I, I've also been, um, pretty general, I think in my response. So if I could just leave you guys with a list of concrete things um, <laughs> that I think are critical right now. And I think reflect what a lot of black community members, um, grassroots organizers, legal advocates, policymakers, legislators are advocating for. Um, and so I'll run down that list, but I'll just say, I think the concrete thing that white people can do is hear that list, understand that list, know that list by heart, um, and demand that you see those uh, reforms implemented. Remand, uh, demand yeah. that if any legislation is passed, that it has those um, provisions inside of it. Otherwise, you're, you're reaching out to your representative. You're letting them know you disagree with that and you keep pushing and you don't accept um, anything less. So I'll just, I'll be very quick. <laughs> I know we've, we've actually been along with the group, so I'm not going to feel no, it's okay. because I'm gonna say, I think Gino and Derek have me a little bit um, outnumbered. <laughs> so, oh. And, and, and I just want to say, I mean, this is such an important issue that I don't want to cut anybody off. I, I mean, I think what, what's yeah. being said here needs to be heard. And, and so, uh, but, but Couture, please uh, go forward with the, with your okay. list of what we can and do. And maybe that, that's just an indication that we need to have a second conversation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> see how I did that? So I would say the first <laughs> thing is making sure that we end qualified immunity for police yeah. officers. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you guys know qualified immunity allows government officials to to basically escape accountability unless they're able to show the very high standard that uh, uh, that a plaintiff is able to show that their constitutional rights were violated and that those rights were, quote, clearly established. Um, amending Section 242 to require that uh, the mens rea is actually changed from willful to knowingly or reckless. Um, completely banning chokeholds. And when I say chokeholds, I mean all maneuvers that restrict um, airway or blood flow and oxygen to the brain, creating a database of officers who misconduct themselves, also having a database um, to the public that expresses clearly what happens with those officers afterwards. So they're not able to jump from department to department if they resign or if they um, are fired but not decertified. Completely banning no-knock warrants, which um, I'm sure you guys remember that, that those were the type of warrants that was the result of Brianna that caused Brianna Taylor's killing, and the 1033 program, which is a program that allows uh, provides federal funding to police departments all across the country to give them hyper-military gear um, and military equipment, and as a result of the images that we saw in 2014 with Ferguson Police Department and officers being in full riot gear in front of the communities um, and ending police in schools. And so I'll stop there. I mean, there are definitely a, a large number of other ones, but I think those are sort of the ones that stand out. Making those changes on the federal level would ensure that we are able to hold officers accountable. And, and I know we're, we're having a larger discussion about civil rights in general, but I do think it's important to also focus on the criminal legal aspect and the policing aspect of this moment. Um, and so for, for so long, this is an area that we get the most pushback. You know, policing is incredibly difficult to make um, legislative reforms with. I've seen year after year where legislators are pushing for reforms that just are common sense to ensure police accountability. And then also on the, on the opposite side, we see 
a large amount of bills that are trying to do additional protections for police officers, um, classify them as a protected class. And so this moment is particularly critical. Um, I know I have been helping and supporting the movement to try, try to make policing more transparent and more accountable. And it's really like pulling teeth. I mean, it really is a, a large push against just the basics. Um, and in this moment, we're seeing those measures go through in a way that we haven't seen before. Just a few weeks ago in New York, we had a major victory where we finally got the policing, the police secrecy law in New York state repealed. It was the most, one of the most strict police secrecy laws in the country. Um, and we had seen it being expanded over and over again. And now, you know, citizens are able to, to understand who the officers are that are walking in their neighborhoods and policing them and what their backgrounds look like. I mean, very simple things that apply to us all as lawyers, but that we couldn't get for policing. So that's the reason I highlight that list before I leave, just because, um, we have to run on this momentum. We have to take advantage of this moment. We have to say, you know, we obviously will continue pushing, but we don't know how long this will last. We don't know how long white allyship will be there. And we don't know if we're gonna go back to a moment where it's mostly black people and people of color pushing for these changes. And so while we have everybody's attention before everybody goes back to doing other things, it's critical that we push for these long lasting reforms. Um, I often like to remind people that we haven't had a major civil rights legislation since the 60s. And so this the time for change is now. Um, and and this, will, this is the first way to make sort of that long lasting, meaningful change to where it doesn't matter if your hearts or your minds change later, we have something in place uh, that protects black lives. So I, I really appreciate you guys having me and I'm so sorry that I have to no. end before the conversation is over. Gino, Derek, it was really great meeting you guys. Um, Likewise. Yvonne, so much. I am happy to reach out or speak again anytime. Yeah. Feel free to just, you know, you know how to contact me. Thank, thank you so <laughs> thank much. You. And, and I just want to remind everybody, we've been there. That's Katura Top. She's going to have to leave us a little bit early. And you can look her up at the NAACPLDF.org, uh, which is an organization that is on the forefront of all of these issues and has been throughout history. Uh, so mm-hmm. thank you so much uh, for coming on, Katura. Of thank course. You. Have a great night, guys. You too. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. 
And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Childs podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services, uh, give them a try. I, I want to give, uh, I, I think we can come close to wrapping up here and we may have to do a second conversation because there is just so much to cover, but I want to give both Gino and Derek a chance to kind of uh, give some uh, uh, last thoughts on, you know, the discussion that we've had. And I think Katura brought up a lot of really great uh, points. Um, it, it, as I said before, I mean, I, I've got tremendous respect for first responders, for our police uh, um, people in uniform. And and by and large, the majority of them are good people trying to do the right right thing. But there is problems in it, and there does need to be change. And holding people responsible for their actions, where in every other part of society, uh, people get held responsible for their actions. If, as a lawyer, I mess up on a client's case, they've got the right to bring me to court, and they've got a right to get recovery for that. It's every other aspect of society, if, if somebody makes a mistake and it causes harm to somebody, you, you can hold that person responsible. It makes no sense why we have uh, qualified immunity and the and the way that the, the has uh, come about through case law. Uh, really makes no sense because you have to have a uh, when you when she, when Katura says you have to have a, um, a violate a clear established law. The Supreme Court has said that that ha- there has to be some prior precedent showing that. So if you don't have if if it's ever happened before, no matter how bad it is, you can't show that it's a clear violation of law. So it 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 it, it makes no sense to uh, the way qualified immunity worked in that. Uh, definitely has to go. And this idea of, of uh, databases, I mean, I, I think I'm thinking of, um, you know, how with, with the Catholic Church, uh, when, when they had their issues going on with, with children getting molest, molested, and they're, you know, basically just moving priests around within their organization, knowing it can keep happening. And, and um, well, you know, we and, talked about it with doctors, too. Right. Remember, right. With the hospital databases. That's right. Find out what was going on. A lot of that information wasn't available to the public. I mean, yeah. that's been a common theme on several of the cases we've talked about. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it absolutely makes sense. Um, and so, uh, you know, so I, I think those uh, changes are absolutely essential. Um, but, but, but Gino and Derek, um, this has been just a fantastic conversation, but I want to give you all a chance to, to give some closing thoughts on, uh, on what we've discussed and, and where we are and where we go. So Gino, why don't we start with, uh, start with you? Oh, thank God. Cause I, <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping I was holding my breath. I love you forever, Steve. I love you because uh, I listen to Derek and forget everything I even said. Uh, so uh, here's my thought. I mean, you know, the reason I bristled about voting is if you don't have the right people in place, you can do all the marching and the policies. And the talk and diagrams and and all the private school words you want to put together. But if you don't have the right senators, representatives and the right people in office who have the courage to do right, then then it's mental masturbation. That's what it is. 
That's what it is. So I go back to what I said. Everybody needs to get out and vote and black people need to get out and vote because some of these folk that are in office right now need to go. They are relics from a past. They need to go. So we actually have a chance. Now, I'm in a unique position, uh, a little more unique than, than other people that talk about this subject. I have represented police officers that kill people. I have sued police officers that kill people. I have mediated cases with police officers that kill people. I presided over cases with police officers that kill people. And I actually was chased through traffic by a police officer that was likely to kill somebody and got me out of my car, spread eagle on the side of my car uh, before he found out that I was a sitting judge in front of the courthouse. Okay. And and his brothers and sisters on the force concocted a story and tried to protect him. The reason the transparency that, that Yvonne was talking about is so important is there's a fraternal, literally and actually, a fraternal uh, culture that that is a, a violent silence with police officers, and lawyers do it too. Mm-hmm. We're not quick to jump up and say that guy committed malpractice we sit down too and hope that the storm passes doctors do it you know what i mean politicians do it what we are what we're experiencing now and and this point leads to what i want to add to what white people can do to yvonne's incredible list okay i got one thing i want to add to it But I want to set it up because the reason this last thing is necessary is we are swimming in a sea of cowardice. You have the reason police officers stay silent is they're fearful that their brothers are going to to bastardize them and make them law enforcement orphans. They're not fearful of that they out somebody, but they got to continue to work. They got to, you know what I mean? I'm not justifying it, but I certainly understand it. And so what happens is with qualified immunity and these other things, then there's a certain certain comfort in silence because you know you can kill somebody on the street. And the likelihood is you're not going, you're certainly not going to jail because prosecutors are not quick to, to indict a police officer in a shooting because one, it's political. And secondly, not all shootings are clear, right? Uh, but what happens is that you mix in this, this uh, uh, societal assault on police. That's how some of them would see it. You mix in that unions and politics and a history of secrecy and a history of no transparency, and you've got what we have here now. Now, This sea of cowardice that we swim in, it requires white people to do one more thing, and really all people, not just white people, and that is be brave. Because we got to have everybody step one foot beyond their fear, both in having the honest conversation. For example, uh, I was talking to this lawyer, and he said, I said to him, Be honest with me. Have you ever done something that you look back on and you say that was racist? He said, yes, actually, I did. He said, I was I had fired a black person in my law firm and 
Uh, she did not do a good job. And I said to my white partners after we fired her, that's why we shouldn't be hiring black people. Wow. Now, if if he, I like it that he told me that because I think it takes courage to say that. And that's where the honest conversation needs to be, where he's got comfort, not total comfort, right? Because I don't want him to be right. too comfortable. <laughs> uh, but, but comfortable enough to be honest and trust me that, that we're not going to have an explosion, that we can talk about it. I want to talk to any person, any white person, that is interested in changing their views. I don't care how radical they are. I was in Santa Barbara, I think Santa Barbara, uh, many, many years ago, and there was a skinhead with all of his uh, tattoos and things on, and he was stabbing, a, uh, we were out there fishing. I'm fishing with my buddy, who's a 6'5 Irish dude. Okay. <laughs> and the, the skinhead had a giant knife, and he's stabbing, right, this fish saying, I hate ends, I hate ends. And he says oh, it man. loud enough for me to hear it. Uh, he didn't realize that didn't that didn't refer to me. I ain't never been that. Okay, so I, I was I was kind of like intrigued with the dude. My buddy said, "Man, don't go talk to him." I said, "I need to understand this dude. I'm willing to be brave enough to talk to him, right? As long as he put a knife down." So I go <laughs> over to him and I said, "You know, man, you obviously are trying to make sure that I hear this. Uh, uh, why do you hate the ants?" And I said, "Right." And it shocked him, right? Because he thought I was coming over to kick his ass. And I wasn't. I was coming to just talk to him. He told me a story of being raped in prison by some brothers. And uh, and he generalized that to, to everybody, right? But as we were talking, I could see that this dude was examining. Now, I didn't change his mind. Because if I changed his mind, we'd be having this podcast on my island. I'd be that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> But I made him pause. And what people, and particularly white people, who are open to changing your mind, you just got to pause and listen, and then the the reconstruction can begin. But it's going to have to be a brave act, because that's a painful thing, to, to go into this conversation with an eye toward making it better. If there ever was breaking eggs to make an omelet, it is this. And the eggs will be crushed, but you got to be ready for that because that damn omelet that waits on the other side is so good for everybody. Oh, it's good having black folks around and in the mix. It is. We put oh, yeah. it so far. Get us further in the mix, and this thing going to be great. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I give the floor to Brother Derek Pope. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Gina, I just say, I mean, I, you know, that, that was just such a great uh, point. But I, I will just say that, you know, just getting people to listen. I mean, you know, so many people in society, it feels like that they're just waiting for their moment to talk, uh, you know, and, and don't listen or they, they hear what they want to hear. I mean, if, if people can just really sit down and listen to each other, uh, I find, you know, it makes you understand where, where, where people are coming from. That's right. Steve, Yvonne, first, you should be congratulated for having this conversation. Um, taking the time out of your, your regularly scheduled programming to do this. You should be you should be congratulated for doing that. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me a part of it. I really do appreciate it, especially yeah. in the company of the Honorable Gino Brogdon and what is just 
undeniable an example of what the future could look like in lawyers like Couture. So I really appreciate being a part of this. Um, Yvonne, you've asked the question, what can we do? Steve, you've asked the question, how do we get here? Where are we going? These are interconnected questions brought on by a set of interlocking circumstances that keep us a little confused and a great deal concerned. Gino used the word cowardice and courage. Sometimes I, when I'm listening, when we, we when, when people, Yvonne, when whites are asking, what can we do? I'm listening to the sets of answers that black people are giving. Um, on the flip side of that coin, I think is a, an apprehension. Black people may think you're just not going to follow through whatever we say anyway. So let me say some things that will get you to do just enough so that in this particular moment, we can lessen whatever the experience is that has brought this moment on. When Keturah gives the excellent outline of some steps to take, it is revealing that at the very end of that outstanding recitation of what can be done, she includes the phrase, because we're not certain what's coming next. That's a re- that's a, that reveals that, well, quite possibly, given all the historical markers to support the sentiment, there could very well come a moment when the alliances that seem to be forming the the affinities that seem to be are being established might fall by the wayside. And it makes me think of use of, of, of a medical analogy. When a patient presents to the hospital in obvious pain, the medical personnel will rush to give immediate treatment, but there is someone with a higher particularized training who will say, because of the nature of what has what what's going with, with what you have presented we want to keep you overnight for observation we don't want you to go back where you can't we're back into your own environment we want to see because if we're too quick in our diagnosis if we rush to a remedy we may have a recurrence of the pain a return to the trauma and a repeat of the hurt that brought you into this emergency situation in the first place. And so while I am very intrigued by the ability of many to offer a response in this moment, a response to this predicament, I want us to be very careful that we not confuse a response with an answer. The response to the predicament is not an answer to the problem. The response to the predicament may be how we move through it. But if we do not have, as part of this conversation, the answers to the problem, we're going to miss what comes in that moment. And we, I wish Katura was still here because I wish I would be able to say that when we're having the, 
the response and the answer conversation, they are not competing with one another. They complement one another. I would love it if we would be able to have the responses that she offered to the predicament go into motion and, re- and, and have the feeling that when we come out of that moment, we'll never experience this again. But I don't have that confidence because there are too many historical markers to the contrary. Right. And so what I want to do is say to ourselves in this moment, we're going to have to stay in this moment a little longer. We're going to have to remain under observation. (laughs) We're going to have to keep seeing ourselves in this disturbing light so that we do not experience that that distressing darkness ever again. We're going to have to be able to get real in this moment. We're going to have to stop stepping into the water and only getting the soap on our shoulders and our knees. We're going to have to go into the armpits, the bowel, the groins, and, 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 and the other places to clean this up. <laughs> we got to get, we really got to get in here. <laughs> and if we leave this moment too soon, because we're, we're, we're looking for a very quick diagnosis so that when the pandemic is over, we can get on back to the sporting contest. We can go back to the music concert. We can go back to the restaurant. We can get back to work on Monday. I wonder what it would have been like if, we had, if the pandemic wasn't present and we had the protest on Friday and everybody turns out on Saturday and Sunday. But Monday, I got to go back to work. Right. Yeah. And so the pandemic is, 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 is sort of artfully and divinely giving us a moment to stay here and place ourselves on observation so that, when, so that when we come out of this, we don't slip back. We don't repeat the pain. We don't return to the trauma. We don't have a recurrence of that hurt. And so keep having this conversation, Steve. Yeah. Keep having this conversation, Yvonne. It doesn't matter if you invite me back or Gino back or Katura back. If every voice is important to get us, is, is another step towards getting us to actually hear the truth. And when we finally hear it, we're going to say, you know, I did not know the extent to which I had been infected by this germ. I didn't know that I had that much of it still in me. There have been some things that have been happening in the last 50 years that caused that germ to lay dormant. But like any predator, it's just waiting for an opportunity to come back up. And, I'm, and, and, and again, my great apprehension is that we, we, we're, we're going to leave this moment too quickly because we're going to accept a response as an answer, uh, as an example, I'm, I'm bothered, Gino, by the, re- the resignation of police chiefs when this happens. Resigning is an act of cowardice. If you broke the police system, you keep your butt on the job and fix the police system. Don't hand your mess off to somebody else to clean up for you. Stay there and commit yourself to fixing it. So if you say, what can we do? Let's all of us stop accepting 
weak punk responses and call them out. Don't sit here and don't sit here and create the culture. And then when the culture comes to the con- comes to the attention of the community, you what you step aside and resign. That's bull. And we have to say that. But we can't say it if we leave this moment too quickly because we're going to say that response. Yep, that was good. And then we'll, we'll figure out that we never answered that problem. Mm-hmm. If you ask again, Yvonne, what can we do? As I mentioned, it's hard work that you have to do. But let me flip the coin again. If you ask me what can you do, I'm going to ask you, Yvonne, what do you want to do? Tell me tonight when you up, when you get your legal pad and your pencil and you write down stuff of what it should look like tomorrow, come back to me tomorrow and say, here's what I'd like to do. What do you think? Will you work with me? Because this is what I like, I'd like to do at that particular point. If I'm correct, and I don't know if I am, I'm not wrong. I'm not certain if I'm correct. I don't know if I am. No, I'm not wrong. If I'm correct <laughs> about the fact that some of the responses you get undergirding that is an apprehension that you're not going to follow through anyway, if you stop asking me what you can do and then say, I've been thinking, I want to do, what do you think? Will you work with me? Now we're at a point where it looks like an alliance is more than something, than a temporary thing. This has become a friendship. This has become something of solidarity. It would would have been okay for everybody to be against slavery, but the Quakers were actually convicted and became abolitionists. So when, if you come to me and say, I want to do this, will you help me? Now I think, we're getting somewhere, but we can't get there if we run out of this moment too quickly. Yeah. Because you'll ask the question, you'll get responses, you'll go in motion, those things will happen. And 50 years, Steve Lowry Jr. and Yvonne Godfrey's daughter will be sitting in the Great Trials podcast talking to Derek Pope's grandson, Gino Brogdon's granddaughter, and Contura's grandchildren, and they will be asking the same darn question again, what can we do? Yeah. So let's not leave this moment too quickly. Let's stay under observation. Let's see ourselves in this light. Brothers deep, man. Thank you, man. And we are, we are going to keep this uh, under observation, remain under observation, and I hope we can uh, continue this conversation. Uh, but this has been uh, just a great conversation. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Judge Gino Brogdon uh, for coming on and giving us uh, his passion and his words of wisdom. And, and Derek Pope, uh, Derek Alexander Pope for coming on and and just uh, you know always uh, just giving us great insight on um, on on everything and I want to remind everybody that if they want to look up uh, Judge Gino Brogdon they can go to ginobrogdon.com g i n o b r o g d o n dot com and if you want to look up Derek Alexander Pope or the Arc of Justice Institute you can go to onthearc.net it's uh, onthearc with the c dot net. Guys, thank you so much uh, for being on. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, 
Have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.